0: This is the Intego Mac Podcast, the voice of Mac security, for August 24th, 2018. In this week's episode, surprise, Google's location tracking works even when you think you've told it not to. We'll explain how Google knows exactly where you are more often than you think. Plus, Apple is expected to upgrade some of its hardware line for the fall. We speculate on what's on the way. One thing's for sure, back to my Mac won't be back. And the USB cable that could be an accessory to crime. The Intego Mac Podcast is presented by Intego, makers of security and utility software exclusively for Apple products since 1997. Now, here are the hosts of the Intego Mac Podcast, Kirk McElhern and Josh Long. So we're in one of those
1: summer doldrums periods where nothing much is going on in the Apple world, but everyone's getting all excited for the upcoming Apple event, presenting the new iPhone, the new Apple Watch, uh, the release of iOS 12, the release of macOS Mojave, potentially some new Macs. And there's some news this week about potentially some new Macs. Two of the oldest Macs, or at least the ones that haven't been updated in a long time, may be getting updates. The first is the MacBook Air, and the second is the Mac Mini. Josh, have you ever had a MacBook Air?
2: Not an Air, no. I've used uh, MacBook Pros. That's my main computer right now is a Pro. But I've known a lot of people who've used a MacBook Air and really like that form factor.
1: I had the first one when it came out in 2008, and I loved that Mac, I really did. And over the years, I think I updated to one or two later versions, then I got a MacBook Pro. And then when Retina Displays came out, it was like, why would anyone buy a MacBook Air When you've gotten a taste of retina displays, that's like buying a black and white TV when you've seen color, right? (laughs) And so I just kind of ignored it. And I'd always been surprised that they'd still been selling it. But I'm looking to an article in Bloomberg in the show notes where Mark Gurman says that there's going to be an update to the MacBook Air and it will have a retina display. Now, this is kind of interesting because the MacBook without modifier has kind of replaced the MacBook Air for those who want a more modern computer If they come out with a Retina MacBook Air, will they get rid of the 12-inch MacBook, which has always been contentious for the fact that it's got a single USB port and and other reasons.
2: Yeah, that's something that I think a lot of people are wondering right now. One of the other things that's kind of curious is that, you know, this rumored device is, uh, I think, supposed to be lighter, potentially, than the MacBook Air.
1: It could be. They might have lighter components. They might Maybe the aluminum's a bit thinner. I mean, you know, if it's going to be lighter than Air, (laughs) why do you... Uh, (laughs) Oh boy Do you remember when Steve Jobs introduced that? He pulled it out of a manila envelope on stage That was very impressive at the time Yeah,
2: yeah, it was Actually, there's a really funny parody video That was when Lost, the television show, was on the air And someone made a hilarious parody Where uh, one of the characters from Lost In the the village owned by the others, you know, from the island In this video, she pulls out a
1: manila envelope And it's got a MacBook Air inside of it (laughs) It's pretty hilarious. So the other thing that they're going to update is the Mac Mini. And it's been something like four years that the Mac Mini hasn't been updated. I still have a 2011 Mac Mini. I use it as a media server. I use it as a backup target for my laptop. It's great to have that little computer there. What disappoints me is that there is discussion that it would be something for pro users. And, you know, if you compare the iMac Pro to the normal iMac, what is it, $5,000 compared to $1,500 or $2,000. If they're going to take the $500 Mac Mini and make it, I don't know, $1,500, that doesn't make it MIDI anymore, does it? Hmm. Yeah,
2: it's, it's kind of hard to justify that price <laughs> you know, and still call it a mini, right? Um, it doesn't sound much like a mini computer anymore at that point. It's small form factor, but but not small cost. Yeah, is, is this something you've ever used? The Mac Mini. Yeah, I haven't personally owned one. Again, it's something that I I, I know some people who have had it, and it it has a very very particular niche. This is the kind of thing that. Um, for example, if you've got a library system that happens to use Macs, they're going to want to probably get a Mac Mini and hook it up to an external display. It's, it, it's the kind of thing that works great for a kiosk or for someone who's switching from a PC and doesn't necessarily need something that's really advanced um, or powerful. But the Mac Mini has always kind of been at that bottom end, which is why it has a, a bottom of the range price as well. So
1: Surely you just... When I bought my 2011 Mac Mini, it was my main desktop Mac. I tricked it out. I got the fastest processor. I got an SSD plus a hard drive because at the time you could get two drives in it. It was my main Mac for probably until 2013 when I bought the Mac Pro. So it was certainly able to run, well, the applications that I use, I didn't do video editing or anything like that, but it was certainly able to run all that stuff. I mean, it was faster than the laptops at the time. And you work on a laptop yourself, so you know what that means. You know you have certain limitations. It is very nice as a small form factor to use as a desktop computer because it doesn't take up a lot of space. So I'm really curious as to whether they're going to try and sell that as a desktop computer or just, as you say, as a niche or, or as the article says, like for data centers and things like that.
2: One thing that Apple hasn't really done well, I think, at this point is they haven't come up with a good replacement for the x right they used to have this rack mount server and you know people have come up with third-party ways to mount a, a mac pro this big enormous machine that's not at all designed to fit in a rack but i mean for for companies that want to have mac servers and want a good way to you know to rack mount them well you can stick a few mac minis in a rack for
1: for those like professional use use cases you know what would be really good if Apple would license the use of Mac OS for cloud servers? Hmm. because most people who are using big servers these days, they don't have their own server farms. They host them in the cloud on Google, on Amazon, on Microsoft's you know cloud systems. And you do this in a virtual machine. you download like the equivalent of a disk image that has your operating uh-huh. system and you run this in the cloud, it would be great if you could do this with a Mac server. Yeah, that's a really interesting concept. I think
2: probably a lot of people who are professionals, you know, server operators, tend to think less of Mac OS as a server platform. But um, I I mean, there definitely are people who really do, you know, need some of the functionality that comes built into Mac OS server. So yeah, I, I actually, I think that would be
1: pretty cool if Apple were to do something like that. So in other news, Apple has been sending notifications to users on their computers that the Back to My Mac service will end soon, that when macOS Mojave comes out, Back to My Mac will no longer exist. Now, in some ways, my first thought is, really, Back to My Mac still exists? (laughs) This is never something I've really used or needed. I remember trying it when it first came out. And I think you had to do this through an Apple airport base station. I'm not sure how it works today. Back to My Mac lets you basically connect to your Mac sort of file sharing or screen sharing from a remote Mac, which is on a different network. So it's kind of, it's a system where Apple's servers are recording the IP address of the Mac in question to allow you to kind of tunnel into it. You know, it's kind of interesting because I can't think of anybody who's ever used that that
2: I know personally who's used Back to My Mac. Yeah. You know, it's and yeah. and, and it's it's important to point out here, too, that this is unrelated to the Find My Mac feature. So Back to My Mac kind of sounds like something related, but it's not. It's, it's, It's actually something different.
1: But the option to turn it on is also in the iCloud preference pane of system preferences right next to Find My Mac. So it can confuse people. In fact, there may be people who've turned it on just because they see it there and don't ever use it. Right. Yeah. Some people
2: probably think that it has something to do with (laughs) being able to find your your Mac. But yeah, as you mentioned, so so back to my Mac is, it's really at this point kind of a legacy thing. You don't really need it much for file transfers anymore. There's all kinds of cloud storage
1: platforms that are consumer friendly. Yeah. Dropbox, Google Drive, iCloud Drive, because Apple is saying to use iCloud Drive. But I I mean, we all store our most important files in the cloud, don't we?
2: Yeah. Yeah. And there's, you know, as far as screen sharing purposes, I mean, there's lots of ways that you can do something like that as well. You don't necessarily need an Apple service to do that. Maybe this is just something that Apple doesn't see as as a need to continue development of anymore, just because there are other services that kind of do some of the same things. But it is curious that suddenly they're just ripping this out of Mojave and they, they're now just finally letting people know.
1: With so little notice, yeah, because th- there might be people who have been depending on this for a while. And, and Apple is making some recommendations of a couple of third-party apps, one of which is called Screens. I think it's $80 it costs, which is, you know, that's a pretty big price to pay for something that was built yeah, into something the something that was system. free before. As you said, you can do screen sharing with messages. You can do it with Skype and there are other ways to do screen sharing, You can put your files in Dropbox, Google Drive, iCloud Drive. So I'm not sure that Back to My Mac really serves a lot of purposes. However, someone I follow on Twitter said, oh, this is going to make it really hard for me to do tech support from 3,000 miles away, talking about her family members who have Macs. And every once in a while, she's called on to do something like that. I
2: see. Yeah. Well, there are a lot of third-party services. There are even some free ones that allow you to connect to somebody else's computer and that are compatible with Macs.
1: So in other security news, you spotted something that's a little bit interesting that uses USB to compromise a computer in just a few seconds?
2: Yeah, this is kind of a a clever hack. Um, So years ago, there there was talk about something called bad USB. And the basic version of this is that an attacker can reprogram the controller chip of a USB drive and make it appear to the computer as a human interface device. In other words, something like a keyboard. So there's this new product. called a USB harpoon. It looks very, very much like a legitimate, authentic Apple cable. It's white, you know, it it uses kind of a similar style and so forth. But what's really going on is that this cable comes modified with connectors that allow both data and power to pass through them. So you can use them to charge your device. For example, on modern MacBook Pros, you can plug into the USB-C port or the the MacBook with the USB-C port. You can plug into it to charge your device. Well, you can use this specially modified cable to charge your device. But this specially modified cable also has some other functionality that you wouldn't expect a cable to have built into it.
1: Well, if it's a harpoon, I guess it's for hunting for whales.
2: <laughs> well, so so there there's some uh kind of sneaky things you can do with this. And there's a couple of videos that, that we'll link to in the show notes that are part of this article on Blooping Computer where they talk about this. And, and they show some potential ways that you could use one of these modified cables to to initiate an attack on a computer. But essentially what you'll see in in the videos is that somebody plugs what looks like just a plain old ordinary usb cable into their mac and then now all of a sudden it opens up the terminal and it starts executing these commands well uh (laughs) you don't necessarily have to do something quite so overt i guess you could be a little bit more secretive about some of the things that you're doing to a mac that you've plugged something like
1: this into right this is just a demonstration because usually malware just stays in the background but here for the purpose of demonstration, they're showing it in a visible window.
2: Yeah, so there's some really sneaky things that you can do with a maliciously modified cable like this. It, this is probably not something that your average listener is ever going to encounter, but what if you did? You know, there there are some potential places where this kind of thing could happen and you would never know it. For example, airports. Often have charging kiosks. Hotels. Hotels have charging kiosks. Yeah. Where you just walk up and plug in your device and you know, no big deal, right? I'm just you
1: use a cable that someone's left. Yeah, there. exactly. And you know who could have left the cable behind knowing that you had a meeting in the bar of the hotel and you know who could be planting malware on your device. Yeah, that Tom Cruise. He's everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> Another thing that can happen is imagine someone breaks into your office and just leaves that cable in the place of the cable that you use to charge your laptop, right? you are none the wiser. As you say, it looks like an Apple cable. I mean, it's not hard to duplicate an Apple USB cable. It's just white and it's got the same logos and anyone can do that. It would be very, very hard to detect this, wouldn't it? Yeah, unless you
2: really pay close attention to fine little details and you know exactly, you know, where there's a little dirt smudge or something on your cable, you may not really notice if somebody swaps out
1: your cable like this. Well, so what do you do about this? Do you, do you keep your USB cable with you at all times, even when you sleep? This is actually serious. I've worked with companies in the past who had people going to other countries to present projects. Say, say they were bidding for a project and they had a proposal in their computers and you know that maybe their competitors in other big companies who were bidding on the project might want to see their proposals. This isn't necessarily spy stuff. Industrial espionage is is actually quite important. So how do you make sure that you're safe from something like this? This isn't even something that's detectable, is it? Because when you plug this in and you turn on your computer, you've put your password in, so the malware that's in the cable can get onto your computer with at least the same rights as your account, correct? Right, exactly. So I think one of the things that you can do is
2: if you go to the Apple menu about this Mac and then you click on System Report, you can get some information about things that are plugged into your computer. However it'll show up as as a, an HID, a keyboard type device.
1: Right. Whereas if you just put a charging cable in, it will not show up there as a device. However, if you've already plugged this into your device,
2: then your computer may already be compromised. It's too late. So
1: yeah.
2: <laughs> that's not necessarily a good way to test this. But yeah, w- without plugging it in, there's not necessarily a good way to know that this device or this cable it could actually be a malicious device. So uh, basically don't trust any cables that you get from anybody else. If, If somebody offers you their charging cable, just say, ah, that's okay, I brought my
1: own. And make sure you have one on you that you keep on you at all times. Okay, we're going to take a break. But first, I want to announce our podcast survey winner for July. It is Vern F. from South Dakota. Thanks for filling out our survey, Vern. And for everyone else listening, we give away a $100 Visa gift card every month to people who reply to our survey. You can find a link in the show notes. Go check it out. Tell us what you like about the podcast, what you want to hear more about. And we'll be right back.
0: If the fast approaching first day of school is circled on your calendar, Intego hopes you'll take a little bit of your summer time that's left to step up your security. After all, when you head back to the classroom with your Mac, you'll want to be greeted by good old friends and classmates, not brand new viruses and malware. As part of our commitment to protecting students and teachers and all Mac users on the security front, Intego wants to make sure that your Mac security is set up and squared away for the fall. It's Intego's back-to-school sale. And right now, Intego Mac Podcast listeners can take 50% off any Intego software by using the promo code IntegoPodcast at checkout. That's right. You can get Intego's award-winning security and utility software for 50% off the suggested retail price. Just use the promo code IntegoPodcast at checkout. No spaces, all one word. The Intego back-to-school sale only lasts... Till that circled date on the calendar. So hurry. Save 50% on Intego software with the promo code IntegoPodcast at checkout. Visit Intego.com today. Hey, Josh,
1: have you been wandering around lately? (laughs) Wandering around? What do you mean? Walking around late at night, maybe, you know, under cover of darkness, surreptitiously wandering around. Because I could swear that I saw something on the Internet where your movements had been tracked and it was showing where you had been. And places where you had stopped and places where you turned left and turned right and all that. You're kidding me. Someone's tracking my movements? Well, I'm exaggerating just slightly, but this is what Google does to you if you're using Google's apps, especially if you're using Google Maps. Imagine that you're using Google Maps and you're getting directions from Google Maps. You realize that it is recording exactly where you are. And if you're signed into Google, it knows that this is you and it's keeping a record of this.
2: Well, I suppose that's true, and I do use Google Maps, but that's kind of expected behavior.
1: I mean, I would expect it to know (laughs) where, where I am, because otherwise the app wouldn't work. Right. So when you're using Maps, it makes sense, but it turns out that Google does this even if you tell them not to, even if you turn off location services in iOS, even if you say that Google Maps should only track your locations while you're using the app in location services... It still tracks your movement. That's, that's strange. AP had an investigation. They published results the other day. I'll link to an article on the Mac security blog that I wrote. And they found that Google records your movements even when you explicitly tell it not to. So even when people turn off location services, Google still records their location. Now, this is just iOS. iOS, you can sort of turn things off. But on Android, forget about it. That's, you know, Google's operating system. And they're tracking you everywhere. Well, is this really something we need to worry about? I mean, it's Google, right? We can trust them, right? Oh, Google, hey, Google has the key to my front door. You know, they—they they, I gave them the key when I bought that Amazon camera thing to get my deliveries faster. Yeah, so here, here's the obvious problem is it's not just that Google knows where you are, it's that they're selling this data to people. Not necessarily selling it with your name, but they're using it for you to be targeted for advertising and other services. So let's say you went to the neighborhood sporting goods store. You wanted to buy a baseball glove for your kid, right? Okay. you get home and you're browsing the Internet and all of a sudden you see all sorts of ads for sporting goods, running shoes and baseball bats and shuttlecocks and snorkels and all that sort of stuff.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, we've all seen this kind of thing, though, right? I mean, anybody who's ever shopped on on Amazon
1: or or done searches for things they might want to buy on Google will end up seeing ads. Yeah, but this isn't shopping for Amazon. This is that they know that let's say they know that you're in a shopping mall and they know which stores you've gone into. Because you know they can pinpoint you that well. Hmm. So they may use that to pop up ads while you're in the shopping mall. And let's say you're searching something on the internet while you're in the shopping mall because you're comparing a price. You may see ads for stores that are just across from you. That's how surreptitious it uh, Okay,
2: be. but is Google really doing this? Is this really
1: something that, that they're actually doing to track you within a store and all that kind of thing? Sure, You can find out about this if you go to myaccount.google.com. You can see everything that Google has recorded about you. This is assuming that you're signed in. If you're not signed in, it gets a little bit more complicated because you've still got a profile created for you that's connected to your device, but they won't necessarily know your name. Although there are probably times where you put your name in someplace and Google sniffed that too. So, Hmm. But if you go to that myaccount.google.com, you'll see every search you've ever made on Google. You'll see your location history. You'll see a ton of activity there. It's really quite frightening. So I I guess probably the biggest
2: takeaway here is just that if people want to know what Google knows about them to check it out, because Google may be tracking things about you that you had no idea that they were tracking.
1: Right. And so that's the first thing. If you go to this myactivity.google.com and then you find the My Activity section, you'll see a whole bunch of activity. It's grouped by type of activity. I'm just looking at mine now and see I don't see anything because I've turned it all off but it can record web and app activity. So Google says it it saves your activity on Google sites and apps to give you faster searches, better recommendations, more personalized experiences. Location history, so it saves where you go with your devices to give you personalized maps and recommendations based on places you've visited. Device information, info about your contacts, calendars, apps, and other device data. Of course, this is only if you're using Google services like email and, and Google Calendar, et cetera. Voice and audio activity. So these are when you say, "Okay, Google to do a voice search. YouTube search history, which is kind of obvious. YouTube watch history. The goal there, they're saying, is make it easier to find YouTube videos you've watched. And and it's interesting because I, I do go to YouTube and watch certain things. And in that sidebar on the right, they're always recommending things that are related to things that I have watched in the past, but rarely to what I'm watching at the time. Wow, now this is interesting. So, I mean, I'm not surprised that it keeps track of what
2: videos I viewed on YouTube. I mean, that's fairly obvious because, sure. you know, yeah. they need to know what videos to recommend to me and things like that. But right. uh one of the things that that pops up right at the top of my results is something that I just searched for in Gmail. It it has the exact search term listed there. <laughs> oh, okay. I guess I didn't really realize that was something that they were recording. Every time I do a search, it keeps track of what exactly I searched yeah, for. Yeah, it does. It makes sense, I guess. But um, but it's kind of creepy to see that because it's not necessarily something you'd expect to find in a log on a public, you know. Well, I mean, now this is not available to the public. Nobody can go see my search history except for maybe Google employees. Well, unless they can hack
1: into or your account. they can hack into my account. That's true then they could have a whole lot of data. So imagine someone gets to your search history, they hack into your account, they find that you've been looking for a new job. They find that maybe you've been searching specific medical conditions, that you've been looking for insurance, that you've been looking up how to disappear, you know, that kind of stuff. How to rob a bank. (laughs) People do actually search for those things. So if someone finds that, you could be blackmailed, you could be... And you could get in all kinds of trouble. Yeah, yeah, this is true. Um, I, I guess you know these are some
2: interesting points, and and again, I, I would, I certainly would encourage people to take a look at this because
1: it might surprise you <laughs> some of the things that Google knows about you. Well, regarding the tracking, so in the article I put a screenshot. So I have all these turned off because I knew about this a while ago, and I turned back on the web and app activity, and I did a search in Safari. In fact, the search I looked for was turn off Google location history. And I came back there and it showed the search. But it didn't just show the search. You know that little map pin below, when I clicked on it, it showed my location. Now, I had location services off for Safari, off for Google Maps. I wasn't doing this in Google Maps anyway. So somehow it still got my location, even though Safari was supposed to not share my location. Yeah, and I think one of the ways that that typically happens is it looks at
2: your IP address. Um, a lot of times, yeah, you know, Google or really any company whose website that you visit uh, can have a pretty good idea of where you are just based on your IP address because your internet service provider typically has, um, you know, kind of a different IP pools for different regions. And so, if Google or whatever is aware of what those regions are, then they can have a really good idea. I've I've noticed this as well when I'm not signed into anything, and you know, let's say uh, I pull up a, a private browsing window and I do um, a Google Maps search or something like that, it'll tell me not not only the the uh, city that I'm in, but even the neighborhood, the name of that neighborhood that I'm in without me being signed into anything at all.
1: And it, it might not even be the IP address alone. It might be the your, your Wi-Fi router that's in a database in a specific location. And if you're doing it from a mobile device, then obviously they can pinpoint you quite easily.
2: Well, yeah, there's potentially, it, it, it depends. I, I mean, if you're just doing it through a website, they shouldn't be able to get your cell tower triangulation or things like that.
1: Un- unless there's some clever hacks <laughs> to do that. I don't know. We don't know, do we? The thing is that all all of this points out how little we know about how our data is used. One thing I found interesting, so if anyone out there follows my website, you know that when I publish articles on this blog and on other sites, I put a paragraph or two on my website and link to the article. Someone posted a comment this morning about this, pointing out that, well, it's not just web browsers, it's also apps, that you can put Google Analytics into an app and it will be tracking your activity in a number of ways, but you are never asked, and you generally don't have any way to turn it off. You know, that that reminds me a lot of, um, there was an app
2: that uh, a bunch of people were downloading back, I think this was January 2017, called, I'm not really sure how to pronounce it, Meitu, Meitu, something like that. Probably Meitu. M-E-I-T-U is how it was spelled. And this was an app that was evidently developed in China, uh, it had been in the app store for years and all of a sudden people started downloading this and this was one of those apps that transforms your photos into a beautiful painting of yourself you know it airbrushes you and makes your eyes big and sparkly and all that stuff everyone wants that so there was a, a security researcher who got you know who downloaded this app was curious when he saw it rocketing to the top of the the popularity charts and he found that there were at least half a dozen analytics and tracking packages within the app and his comment about that was you don't generally need that many unless you're selling data so this is kind of interesting right i mean it kind of it kind of makes sense like you you would expect a lot of app developers to have at least one tracking method in
1: their app but if they're putting six in there what the heck are they doing with your data And and it also depends on what they're tracking. Tracking usage is one thing, maybe how long people use it, which features they use in the app, you know, which screens, which windows or whatever. But if this is able to provide location tracking as well, that's especially pernicious. I'll put a link in the show notes to the Google Analytics web page. that is add analytics to your iOS app. Neither of us are developers. We don't know a whole lot about the code, but the code is very simple to install. You just puts a few lines of code in a certain place and then you put your analytics tracking ID and then all this data goes to your analytics account, which of course also goes to Google. So it's worth being aware of this. It's worth checking out what activity Google is storing of yours and turning it off if you'd like to. It's important to point out that there's already been one lawsuit filed against Google for this and I'm sure there are going to be others. The the one thing that surprises me is that when I had Safari's location services turned off, Google still found my location. Now, is it because of the IP address or something else? I don't know. But I do find this a little bit disturbing because, you know, we explain on the Mac security blog, we we explain to people how they can turn off these settings to maintain their privacy and all that. But even the settings themselves don't fully work as they should. I I would like to see Apple address this at some point. And and I have a feeling, you know, this was the, the Associated Press who did this research. This wasn't a tech website. So this is probably going to get a lot more attention than, you know, if it's just your average tech website that comes up with this. And and I look forward to see what Google says. I mean, Google's statement was very simple. They said, we make sure location history users know that when they disable the product, we continue to use location to improve the Google experience when they do things like perform a Google search or use Google for driving directions. Again, directions I understand, but it's like you're saying that we can disable it, but it's not disabled. And that's a bit duplicitous. All right, with this in mind, Your project for this weekend, Josh, is to go through all of that Google account history and see what you want to keep and see what you want to turn off. And, (laughs) you know, it's interesting. The first time I did it, I went back and I saw all the Google searches I had done, and there were a million of them. It's quite interesting to see how much data Google actually knows about you. That's a great point, Kirk. In the meanwhile, stay secure, Josh. Stay secure.
0: Thanks for listening to the Intego Mac Podcast, the voice of Mac security with your hosts, Kirk McElhern and Josh Long. To get every weekly episode, be sure to subscribe at Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. And if you can, leave a rating, a like, or a review. Links to topics and information mentioned in the podcast can be found in the online show notes for the episode at podcast.intego.com. The Intego website is also where to find details on the full line of Intego security and utility software intigo.com